You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we hear how renal patients are being given control of their own health records. Well, actually, it is the internet era, and yet nothing has changed very much for patients. But before that... In the US, the Susan G. Komen Foundation has been in the news for their potential split with Planned Parenthood and the effect that that might have on the breast cancer screening programme there. But there's another area of that that uh, two of our columnists, Steve Woolishan and Lisa Swartz from Dartmouth College, in their not-so-stories have been looking at, and they join me on the line now. Hi, Steve and Lisa. Hi. Hi. Could you tell us a little bit about the Susan G. Komen and how big their screening project is in the States? They're probably the largest cancer charity in the, in the United States, possibly in the, in the world. I think in 2010, they generated over $420 million. They fund research. They support um, screening programs. They created the Pink Ribbon, which is ubiquitous in the United States. You can't, you can't really buy any consumer product nowadays without finding a Pink Ribbon. Mm-hmm. We found one on a package of sausages recently. <laughs> um, and uh, it's all about uh, trying to um, make women aware of breast cancer and encourage them to get mammograms. They are really responsible for turning the month of October into a really tremendous phenomenon in terms of creating that kind of awareness. So, for example, they have the football players and the some of the national teams, they wear pink shoes, and there they will be pro-mammography announcements at the football games and ad campaigns like the ad that we have in our column. Sure. Now, what drew your attention to, to this ad particularly? Well, this, this ad got a tremendous amount of, of play when it, when it came out. It wasn't so much that we found it. It was just it was hot, impossible not to see. We just were really taken by this um, egregious misuse of survival statistics. It's a really compelling ad. There's this woman and there's this arrow saying, you know, what's the key to surviving breast cancer? You get screened now. And then it says early detection saves lives. And then it gives this survival statistic. The five-year survival for breast cancer when caught early, 98%, when not, 23%. So, I mean, it's just giving this message, you know, that you have to be out of your mind not to, to get screened. Mm. So what was the first thing you noticed uh, about the survival statistic? Uh, what do you think was the, the main thing wrong with it? The survival statistic is used here to support the idea that screening saves lives. Um, and you, you can't tell from the survival statistic whether any lives are saved because the statistic is about what happens to people from the time of diagnosis. But screening changes the timing of diagnosis. So without screening you might not get diagnosed until you feel a lump, let's say. But with screening, it moves that time back perhaps years. If you look at survival from the time of diagnosis, it's unavoidably biased because of this phenomenon of lead time. Even if screening didn't work, even if it caused harm, survival would go up with, you know, by moving the time of diagnosis early. So we tried to use the analogy that we talked about in the uh, in, in the article, this is to the um, old Bullwinkle show. So yeah. in Bullwinkle, there's, there's a character, Nell Fenwick, and she gets kidnapped by Snidely Whiplash, and he ties her to the railroad track in order to extort money from the family. Nell is on the track, and she's going to be hit by the train, and screening is like giving her binoculars so she can see the, screen, the train further off. 
lead time biases, she'll know about the train much earlier, but she'll still die at exactly the same moment. Mm-hmm. I, I think the important point is that lead time is not necessarily a bad thing. A screening test has to be able to find disease earlier to have the possibility of working. But when you look at survival statistics, it creates a tremendous distortion with survival statistics, and that's why you can't use them to judge the benefit of screening. So it's not that lead time is necessarily bad, but it that dramatically distorts these statistics. Absolutely. And you mentioned their treatment, but there are those problems with overtreatment in, in breast cancer that we've written about quite extensively in the BMJ. Was there anything in this about the, the sort of potential risks of that? Overdiagnosis also distorts the survival statistics because um, screening can pick up cancers that were never destined to pro- progress. Mm. And that inflates the numerator and the denominator of the survival statistic and makes things look better. Again, even if there was no real change, even if the same number of people died at exactly the same time, it still makes the survival statistic look better. The only way to really know whether a screening test works is to look at mortality reported from a randomized trial by comparing the screen group in a randomized trial to the unscreened group. Mm. And you do have uh, a table with, with some of that data in your story. So what was the, the outcome of those that RCT? There, you know, there's some controversy because there's different ways to, to try to estimate how much di- overdiagnosis there is. But the commonly quoted statistics now are something like between 2 in 10 women are overdiagnosed per life saved. So that means 2 to 10 women get diagnosed, treated, and can only suffer the harms of treatment, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and no possibility of benefit because they had nothing that needed to be treated to begin with. Now, in Europe, um, there's beginning to be a conversation about, you know, whether it's actually worth doing this kind of um, blanket mammography screening on, on women. There's actually an independent commission that's been set up um, to help the NHS decide whether it's worth it. Is there any sort of conversation like that happening in the US? Over the past let's say, 10 to 15 years, the consultants to the federal government, like the US Preventive Services Task Force, which is an independent group, looks at screening and mammography um, in particular. They've pushed back and, and suggested less screening starting at age 50 as opposed to 40, Hmm. increasing the interval between screens, so doing less intense screening. The problem is that there's been a tremendous backlash, and it's been highly politicized, and it's been extremely, you know, difficult to have sort of a rational um, discussion of these issues. Mm, I see. And um, how does the, uh, the Susan G. Komen Foundation sort of stand on that? Part of their fundamental message is uh, is a call to action to encourage women to get screened. Now, their website does have some more balanced information, including some information about some of the harms of screening, but the ad campaign didn't have any of that. It was just a pure aggressive call for, for screening, magnifying the benefits, minimizing, actually not discussing the harms at all. For years now, many, many years, decades, there's been these campaigns to try to promote screenings. These advertising campaigns are here, and I don't think they're going away. What we think is there should be better information available. I think Coleman Foundation, I think they owe it to women to help them make a good decision 
what, you know, to decide whether or not to get screened, not just to promote screening. And, and I think the very important thing that needs to be done is to help women realize that it's a genuine decision and it's not an imperative to get screened. And so the idea that because a given woman may experience benefit, but they may also experience harm, that it really is a genuine decision and it can affect your life in either direction. And I think that women deserve the right to participate in that decision, not to be persuaded to have a mammogram. Mm. And certainly not to be fooled, because, I mean, these, these statistics, is just incorrect. And um, Because they make you believe that the mammogram is really the difference between you know, surviving from breast cancer or not, and that's really not the case because on average over the next 10 years, I mean, the the chance of dying from breast cancer in absolute terms is reduced by, you know, less than 1%. Mm. Steve and Lisa, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Sure, thank you. Thank you. And Steve and Lisa's column is available on bmj.com. Now, health records. A group of articles on bmj.com extol the virtues of patient-controlled records. One initiative mentioned in one of those articles is Renal Patient View, and I'm joined on the phone now by Neil Turner, who's a Professor of Nephrology at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary and former Chair of Kidney Research UK, who's actually been instrumental in setting up this patient service. So thanks for talking to us, Neil. It's really good to have the opportunity, thank you. Great. So Renal Patient Views, this website, which patients can log into to see things like their test results and their doctor's letters, prescriptions, and so on. And then they can choose to share that with whomever they wish. So why did you decide you needed to set up something like this in the first place? This came about in a really interesting way. Um, a number of people in the, uh, in, in the renal professional associations have been approached by people who said, we can make you a fancy website and so on. Instead of just saying, no, go away, we said, well, actually, it is the Internet era, and yet nothing has changed very much for patients. Mm. So we, we convened, a, a, a group of us um, convened a, a gathering of patient associations, professional associations, um, and that's not just medical, it's nursing and, and other, other staff too, just to think broadly about the question of how we should be moving in the Internet era. And just one of the real strong messages that came through from the patient group was that they wanted to see more of their information. So which patients are you targeting with these? Is it a particular sort of subgroup of renal patients? Well, really, it's anyone who attends a renal unit. And um, broadly, the users of the system now are about equally divided between transplant patients, dialysis patients, and patients who just attend renal clinics who have some type of kidney disease but don't require dialysis or transplantation. In, in fact, that last group is probably the one that's growing um, fastest as the service expands. Hmm. And you have some videos online with patients talking about this, and they seem to be ones who are quite involved in self-management. Do you think that's a big plus for, for this kind of service? Having a, a, a serious chronic disease is, is, is a big thing, and... Um, I think that most patients want to become um, masters of their condition. Um, It's just that some of them want to do it quickly, some slowly, but um, it's certainly astonishing how how much knowledge they can gain, regardless of educational background and and so on. Mm. Has that enthusiasm taken a little time to manifest, or was it there 
kind of from the beginning? It's been there from the very outset. The very first few patients who tried it said, this is good, we want more of it. Okay, and has it taken a while for the rest of the population to kind of get involved or, or to become comfortable with having their, their details like this online? Interesting, I think that last bit you raise, I don't perceive that the anxiety about having your details online has been a barrier to hardly any of our patients at all. Uh, I, you know, I think patients are doing a kind of risk-benefit analysis, so if there was nothing wrong with them, they'd probably be worried about it. But mm. um, if they've got serious disease, then the benefits to them of being able to see their information, they, they rate that very highly indeed. I think the reason 100% of patients don't take it on straight away, well, there are two. First of all, patients have to learn about this gradually and that it can be good for them, and that's quite slow. Yeah. Um, and secondly, clinicians are, every new unit is quite reluctant to recommend it or, or anxious about recommending it strongly at the outset. And, and we, we tend to see a gradual build-up in a new unit, differing rates. And I think this is clinicians um, discovering that actually it, it doesn't ruin their lives. <laughs> uh, it actually makes working better. So do you think clinicians are a bit more reluctant than patients to, to get involved? Well, that that probably is a general experience, I think, from what I've read about and heard about people's experiences with records access generally. Patients are, on the whole, keener than their physicians. Hmm. So you've mentioned at the beginning now about how you, you brought together sort of different groups, technology, patient groups, nursing, doctors, to, to talk about this. But when we think about actually setting up you know, the website, as you see it there at renalpatientview.org. How did you go about developing that um, and getting around things like security concerns um, about patient records? Yes, that was really difficult at the time we were doing this. I'm, I'm not clear it would have been easier now. But um, in we, so we were doing this in about 2004 five, um, and it was very difficult to find anybody who could tell you that if you did it this way it would be fine mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in the end we came up with a structure and we found the most senior people we could and we said that if patients are asking us to do this will this be you know does this tick the boxes for um, a, a good enough level of security beyond that it was a process of persuading um, Caldicott guardians and their data protection advisors and um, fortunately, we're now in the position where they can look at the system having been in operation for quite a long time and the experiences um, from that and, and the opinions of a lot of other people now. Mm. But, yeah, that, there, wasn't a, there wasn't a clearly defined way to do it. And a lot of our work in the first year was trying to sort that out. NHSIT has a sort of reputation for being very expensive. Was this a, a really expensive service to set up? Well, the way we did it, it wasn't. Because we couldn't see where any long-term funding was going to come from to do this. And of course, it was set up as a, as a, a pilot. We, we did it bit by bit, didn't commit huge amounts of money at any one time, um, built it incrementally. We worked with um, two or three relatively small IT providers um, in a kind of agile development manner. So we did a bit, then see where we were up to, and then maybe revised where we wanted to go next. Um, so we didn't write a huge specification at the outset and then sign off the contract at the end of a, a predefined period. Um, 
So you said there it sets up, what, 2004, 2005? Have you seen a change in, in outcomes or in the way you manage or self-management works with these patients? Opinion of um, patients and clinicians are very strongly uh, believe that, that it does help these things, but uh, it, it, it's extremely difficult to think what you would use to prove a difference in outcome. Mm. There are some very persuasive uh, anecdotes within our own system, but if you look widely and internationally, um, e- even even the most rigorous tests are quite hard to find. There are um, certainly with individual patients, it's very clear that once they once they grasp an understanding of what's going on and why they should be doing um, particular interventions, they are much more likely to comply. So as you say, this has taken a while to develop and it's been a bit of a a journey for you. Are there any lessons that you've learnt through doing this that that perhaps anyone else who's thinking of setting up a similar type of service should pay heed to? Um, Well, I think the method of evolution was very important. It involved multiple multiple groups thinking, what what should we do? How can we do it? and so it had it had buy-in from some of the from the, the right constituencies at the outset. But I think having the other thing that was important was not thinking we had the whole solution in our minds at the very beginning. It was a continuous interaction, um, evolving the thing further forwards, taking a step at a time, um, and and trying it out. One of one example, perhaps, of the um, questions we were worried at the outset that patients would learn bad news through the system or, or see dangerous test results. Um, we did wonder about whether in that case we should make sure that clinicians had seen the tests before they went out. But that would lead to delays and extra work for clinicians probably, so we thought we'd pilot it without. And in fact, none of the disasters happened. Um, two things, first of all, patients discovering dangerous blood test results before we have rung them up Surely that's a good thing, yes. um, a point that patients have made. And, and secondly, um, there have been one or two wonderful comments from patients, really, quite quite sobering, saying, I know you guys have had training in breaking bad news, but um, it's still bad news, you know. You're not, <laughs> you can't make it good news, and sometimes they would rather learn it and then spend their time with us discussing what to do about it. And that's a very um, uh, intelligent approach, actually. Mm, And one that you didn't expect. Well, I suppose sitting back, we were were imagining that we were allowing patients to see these things because we wanted them to understand and think about their disease. So... But yes, it was. It was. It did bring it um, very much into into reality. But it is a partnership. Um, It's it's not us telling them things. They are the people living with this. Great. Well, uh, Neil, thank you very much for taking the time to tell us a little bit about Renal Patient Review. Not at all. Thank you, Duncan. It's been um, very, uh, very good to have the opportunity. That's almost all for this week. But before we go, David Payne, BMJ.com's editor, has popped into the studio to talk a little bit about the BMJ's new tablet app. Thanks, Duncan. 
So you have this new app that's that's coming out. What is it? So yes, we've had an iPad app now for sort of eighteen months, uh, and and it's going very well. In, in it's going very well. But one of the downsides of it is that it's it's great for personal subscribers and for people that want to buy a monthly uh, issue or a single issue. But one downside of it is if you're if you're accessing BMJ.com from an institution, that you can't get it. So we've launched what we've called a tablet app um, available at BMJ.com tablet, which means if your employer or your hospital has an institutional subscription to BMJ.com and you happen to own an iPad, you can get the app version of the journal um, in a sort of browsable format um, via that route. So it's an HTML5 app, which means that eventually it should be available on other devices as well. Exactly, yes. When is that going to happen? Well, that will probably happen towards the autumn. Um, we decided to launch on the iPad because if you look at the data that we get, you know, the iPad is still very much the, uh, you know, the, the market leader. Um, we had 103,834 visits to, to BMJ.com in the last month um, from mobile devices. But of that figure, 43,500 actually came from the iPad. So we thought we'd launch with the iPad. We're conscious that most people still use that and then obviously roll it out to other devices um, towards the end of the year and probably, you know, decide which devices to launch on based on you know where most of the traffic is coming from and what our readers are telling us that they visit bmj.com on and uh, use that to influence where we go next. So is this new app better to get? Does it look any different to that original one? Um, it looks very, very similar, in fact. One thing it hasn't got, unlike the original iTunes that we uh, we launched, is there's a feed, obviously, of our latest podcasts, blogs, and news. And uh, the, the, the new app that we've launched actually just has a link back to bmj.com to access all of those things. So so that's really the main difference. you know. But if there's a video embedded in an article, for instance, you still get that. Uh, you know, if you, Just looking at it, sort of browsing through it, they're very, very similar indeed. So, I mean, I, my, my advice really is that if, you, you know, if you're accessing the BMJ via the iTunes app and you've got it say as a membership benefit through the BMA or you know very or another route you're a personal subscriber it's probably to stick with the one that you've got but uh, as I say this one is a is a real benefit for our institutional visitors and as I said you can find out more by going to bmj.com forward slash tablet. Thanks David. Now that's all for this week next week we'll be back with a slightly later than build look at pharmaceutical innovation. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.